Well, if you've been joining us, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and I know that you know these, these aren't exactly like the Advent passages, um, but really for me, because I believe the Bible um, is Christocentric, meaning that everything is about Christ, we can find uh, bits and pieces of Advent in every passage almost. And so um, we now turn to a passage where after the fact, James and John proudly demanded Jesus, who is the greatest? And yet compare that with the person we're going to find in our passage today, which is Bartimaeus, who is a blind beggar. And yet this is the person that Jesus meets. This is the type of person that Jesus loves. That's, I believe, part of the the, uh, um, beauty of Advent, is that no matter how blind we are, how needy we are, God meets us in those places. And so with that in mind, we turn to uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. And once you find your places there, uh, can you please stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able to? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Uh, Let's give them our full attention today. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, uh, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. Uh, Would you join your hearts with mine in a quick word of prayer? God, we pray that with everything we can possibly be thinking about, that during this moment, with the meditations of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, be pleasing to you. And would you truly show us the hope of what Advent really brings, of a God who promises to be with us. Would that be more real than the skin that sits on us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're in this uh, season of Advent, I imagine that there's a lot of um, children's Christmas plays that you possibly might be going to uh, that display the Advent story. And one of the things I notice about all these kids' uh, uh, plays is that they never have the role of Herod. You ever notice this? No one ever plays the role of Herod. They have all the care. It's not like they are lacking people because they have like sheep dressed up, cows and all that, but they leave out Herod for some reason. 
He's such a pivotal part of the story. A king who ordered the massacre, the annihilation of Hebrew boys. If that's not dark, I don't know what is. Yet in the darkest of circumstances and conditions, that is the place where Jesus decides to come. You know what I think Advent is? Advent is a reminder that the world has gone blind. The world has gone blind to the ways of God. And it takes, and all we're really looking for are signs and glimmers of God's kingdom. Like the three wise men that search for the star of David just to see for themselves, is the king finally here? Has the promised Messiah come? I think Advent is a hope that we desperately see that in all of our darkness, in all of our griefs, and everything that we get cloudies are our visions of where, what God is doing. Advent is that one glimmer of hope. He's still here. He's in on all this. We just have to have faith to be able to see. And so I want us to look at three ways and how can we see the Lord's way of doing things in these three ways. What it means to be seen. Secondly, what it means to actually see. And last of all, the scene that God sets for us. See, scene, see, scene. Let's look at the first part, scene. See, as we look at all the festivities of Christmas lights on, on the homes, uh, Christmas carols being sung as we go shopping, the, the pine scent of Douglas firs, um, you get the sense that Christmas is just right near the corner. And there's excitement that buzzes over this. That's the exact kind of intensity of feelings as the Passover is near in our passage here. That the annual Jewish celebration that commemorates God freeing his own people from Egyptian slavery, every devout Jewish, uh, Jewish person will make their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. So the streets and the roads, they're, they're bubbling with people in anticipation. They're, they're singing the psalms together that reflect the liberation of his people. And so Jesus and his, people, uh, and his disciples start making their way to Jerusalem from Jericho. And in the midst of making their journey, they meet a blind beggar named Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside. And keep in mind here, rarely do you ever find anyone's name being mentioned in any of Jesus' healing episodes here. So scholars say the fact that Bartimaeus' name is mentioned is probably because he became a prominent figure within the early Christian church as a devout believer, which I have no reason to doubt. But I also think the name Bartimaeus being mentioned here reveals that God is able to see even the most desolate and isolated person that God sees. See, he's identified as a beggar, which means he couldn't contribute to his society. And blindness is also uh, a sign of an exilic curse for Israel's disobedience. So the fact that this man is blind, Bartimaeus is blind, means he really messed up with God. His condition leaves him in exile from his own people, but also from God. Look at where he is. It says he's sitting on the roadside, outside Jerusalem. 
which means he is unable to celebrate the Passover with his own people. And so when Bartimaeus calls out for Jesus, the people try to rebuke him, they try to silence him. And the thing is, I wouldn't be surprised if the disciples are in on the act of trying to silence him, because after all, these are the same people that kept the children from coming to Jesus to bless him. The crowd dismisses and silences because they see, all they can see is a blind beggar. But Jesus sees Bartimaeus. Jesus sees Bartimaeus. My friend and I, we have this mutual friend where um, uh, we'll just call him Jay for just confidentiality. And so my friend and Jay, they were one day walking somewhere in Palo Alto and uh, the car, there was this car that was driving by and it slowed down and rolled down the window. And guess who was in the car? Jeremy Lin's brothers. Do you know Jeremy Lin? Lin Sanity and the New York Knicks. He, he like, he made Kobe look silly and no one really does that. Lin Sanity's brothers are in there. They rolled down their window and they said, Hey Jay, what's up? And my friend standing by him became starstruck. Right before his eyes, Jay's status level became elevated because of the one that acknowledged him. I think that's the kind of feeling that Bartimaeus must have felt as Jesus called him. Jesus sees Bartimaeus. See, in May of this year, the Surgeon General, they issued a new warning of an epidemic and a crisis that we have in America. You know what it was? An epidemic of loneliness and isolation. I don't think any of us saw that coming. And I think that in a place like the Bay Area, this becomes even more prevalent because uh, a lot of us become so consumed with work and play, uh, it starts to dominate our lives. We, we work so hard to meet the cost of living here, and then we play to justify how hard we've worked. And so relationships, they start to become this luxury for us that if we have the means and times, we'll do it. But if not, it's okay. And then, um, but to be human is to actually be being known by someone. It's what we actually crave. People can know our resumes. People can know our work selves. People can know the things that we have, the kind of neighborhoods that we live in. They can know our kids and our kinds of parenting styles. But at the end of the day, do people really know you? Do they know you? Because that's what we really need, to be seen. There's this uh, artist in SF. Her name is Wendy McNofty. And uh, she lives in SF in the city where statistics, people only look at the statistics and demographics of each other, but they aren't able to see each other. And what she's been witnessing in this city is that people are more and more uh, uh, fragmented, uh, divided. No one wants to say hi to one another. And, you know, as an artist, this kind of broke her heart. And so what she decides to do is she goes to one of the BART stations. She sets up a little table with paper and pencils beside, and she gets two random strangers, and she's, she has them sit down, and she says, for one minute, I want you to draw each other's face. Okay? But the caveat is this. You can only stare at each other, but you cannot look down at your paper, and your pencil must never get off, uh, leave the paper. You just got to keep drawing. 
And so you can imagine these strangers drawing each other's faces and they're doing it for 60 seconds, just intently looking at each other's faces. And every time they're done, the 60 minutes is up, or 60 seconds is up, they look at each other's drawings and they chuckle because the, the, the drawings are horrendous, you know? But what they realize out of this whole situation is that they felt this connection made within this 60 seconds that they finally saw someone, a stranger. Friends, what would it look like for us as New Life Fremont that instead of just, you know, assuming how we're doing, we truly seek to be seen by one another because it's what we really need. It's too easy for us to assume that what each other's lives are really like when really all along we desperately need to be seen. And Advent is that gracious reminder that God sees us and he can't ignore our conditions. Question is, do we see him? Second point here, see. See, nowhere in the Old Testament records this miracle of healing the blind. And yet the prophet Isaiah actually prophesies that there will come a day when the servant of the Lord figure would reverse the exilic curses of blindness. As you look up here to Isaiah 47, verse 6 through, uh, six through 7, and the one, only one who notices this promise is Bartimaeus. He's the only one in Mark that actually refers to Jesus as the son of David. No one else makes this claim. No one else makes this connection. The true servant of the Lord figure about to bring renewal. You know what I think it is? You know why I feel like only Bartimaeus sees it? It's because everyone else is thinking, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. A type of cynicism. Kathy used to point out to me that I used to have this tendency where I would, whenever an idea was thrown out to me, I'd quickly shut it down. Like, she'd say, why don't you go ask? They're just going to say no. Why don't you just go to this restaurant? Oh, it's going to be too loud and noisy. Why don't you just say hi? They're just going to leave anyways. What's the point? Why don't you just give them a chance? They're just going to ruin it. It's like second nature to me to respond and react this way, this type of cynicism. And I'm what you call a Debbie Downer, party pooper, an Eeyore, whatever you want to call it. But the thing is, it's about the pro proper word is about being a cynic. Why am I like this? Why am I like this, I wondered. And the thing is, I'm like this because cynicism gives us this illusion of intelligence that at least I wasn't the one that was fooled. I told you it wouldn't work. But when you dig a little deeper, cynicism is not a sign of intelligence. It just becomes a substitute for it, a way to shield yourself from betrayal and disappointment without having to think or to do. I believe it when I see it. But Bartimaeus believed it because he heard it. That for all his life, he sat there listening to the promises of God, waiting for the day to finally come. And it's faith that made Bartimaeus actually see. And when Jesus calls Bartimaeus, 
There is absolutely no hesitation on his part. As a matter of fact, he's kind of reckless in what he does. Look at verse 50. He threw off his cloak, he sprung up and came to Jesus. What you, what you have to realize here is that Bartimaeus is a beggar, which means his cloak is probably his only possession that he has. And not only that, his cloak is probably carrying all the change that he probably gathered from all his begging. So he's throwing away his most valuable possession just to come to Jesus. Like, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't he just get up with his cloak on and just meet Jesus? Because he doesn't want anyone to hold him back. He doesn't want anything to hold him back. In this generation, what I believe hinders us from seeing God is that we have too much to lose to the point we're not open to actually receive anything. We've got too much to lose. The point of all this isn't to get rid of everything you've earned or had, but do you look at everything as a gift to be received from God who graciously gives to the blind and needy? And so Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? It's a blank check of sorts. The same questions asked to Jesus' disciple, uh, asked by, asked to Jesus' disciples, James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And James and John asked for glory. But Bartimaeus simply says, Rabbi. Or a better translation is, my Lord. Let me recover my sight. This idea of seeing the Lord is the common expression used to describe salvation. Bartimaeus is asking to see, but on a deeper level, he's asking to see the salvation of the Lord. Save me. To see salvation of the Lord is not just about you, but it's about waiting for the servant of the Lord, the son of David, the true son of David, to restore everything that is wrong about our lives, everything that we fear, everything that we have tears over, to finally be changed and renewed to be good again. But for a lot of us, it's this waiting process that keeps us from seeing the true servant of the Lord. You know, last week I was I wasn't at church, and I missed you guys, by the way. Um, and we were celebrating our 10-year anniversary, and my family we took this trip to Hawaii, um, and we went on this hike that someone recommended called Manoa Falls. Uh, I think I have a picture up here. Um, and at the end of the trail, there's supposed to be this beautiful waterfall, and it's only like a mile slight incline. So once you get in, like your skin starts to heal because of the moistness of the air and like everything's so clean and like you could feel your skin just healing. But two minutes into this hike, my daughter says, my legs are tired. Let's go back. The thing is, I paid $7 for parking. So I didn't pay $7 to look at the parking lot. I said, we're not, we're going to do this hike. So I, I hoist her up on my, uh, on my shoulders like a sack of potatoes, and we start heading all the way up. Then 20 minutes later, Miles says, I'm tired. Can we go back? 
But right behind him, you could literally see the streams of the waterfall. I'm like, we're not going back. We're right there. Keep going. So we finally make it all there. Exhausted, sweaty, tired. And we have to take the family photo just to make sure that everyone knows that we did it, right? And so we take the photo, and as we're taking the photo, uh, people, you know, people are cheering us, and they're saying, oh, you finally made it. And then, like, the kids, Millie goes, oh, yeah, we did it. And I just turned to her. I was like, what do you mean we? What, what do you mean we did it? I carried you. It made me chuckle inside because there is the Christian life right there. We're always settling for things that we can see rather than for what is promised. Waiting becomes so wearisome. It's hard to see God when tears blurry our eyes and when the anxieties and worries and troubles, they barricade us that we can't see through all of it. It's easier for us to doubt than to actually possess faith. And in this beauty of Advent is that the Lord sees you. And yet instead of waiting for you to have enough faith to come to him, He is the one that faithfully comes to you to be Emmanuel, God with us, means he will see us through, to see us through the fire, to see us through the flood, and even through the grave. Because darkness and death don't necessarily blind us from God. But it's his means that he uses for us to actually see. And that's the scene he's been setting all along. Which brings me to my last point here, the scene that God has set for us. Faith makes Bartimaeus well. And as amazing of a faith that he displays in this whole episode, it's not the quality of his faith, but who he places his faith in that makes him well. Go your way, Jesus says. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus' actions here in the last verse are perhaps the most extraordinary out of all the things that he's done so far. Because at this point, he could have just lived his life. He could have just lived his life comfortably, being able to see and all that. Instead, he follows Jesus on the way. On the way to what? A crucifixion, a death, a mockery. You don't think the Roman Empire wouldn't hesitate to pluck out this man's eyes just for following Jesus? They will easily do it. And yet no hesitation again. Wholeheartedly follows Jesus on this way. He is either insane or this can only make sense if he truly sees something more to this life than we, what we can possibly actually see. See, at the, end of verse, at the end of verse 52, you find this expression where it says the way, and I kind of nerded out here for you. In the Greek, it's called hados. And guess what the book of Exodus means? Ex meaning out, hados meaning way. Therefore, the way out. Jesus is leading a greater exodus, a way out of the school shootings, a way out of divisive politics, a way out of our mental health crises, a way out of Gaza with no more blood, a way out. But the only way out 
is through death. You know, in uh, 2022, I read here that they updated the manual for mental health disorders, something that therapists and psychologists, they use quite often. And in this manual, they labeled a prolonged, they, they labeled a prolonged uh, sadness or grief as a disorder akin to PTSD. So if you're grieving for too long, it's almost the same thing as PTSD. Guess where they get this from? Sigmund Freud, who thought that anyone who can't overcome their loss has a pathological disorder. You know, I'm not an expert in this field, but I'm sure there's nuances and, and all that, but, but is loss and grief something you can just get over? I always wonder this. I mean, what makes losing someone so intense isn't just the fact that they're gone, but that the world looks different without them, like it's missing something. There's this beach called Lanikai in Hawaii, and it's like a, such a pristine beach. The sand looks like crushed pearls. The water is clean, uh, so, like super clean. You can see down, everything down the bottom. I took my kids there in their floaties, and they bobbed up on the water, splashing each other. And then out of nowhere to my right, up comes the head of a sea turtle. And I was like so surprised by this because it made me both happy and sad at the same time to see it. Happy because the last time I was there, uh, which was my first time, we got to see a sea turtle at the same beach. And the thought that I had going on is, whoa, this is crazy. I wonder if I'll ever be back to see something like this again. But this time around, as I saw the turtle, there was a little tinge of sadness for me because I couldn't help think about my friend, you know, who died this past year. I only thought about him because of the last conversation I had with him. I was sharing about my vacation to Hawaii, how I got to see the sea turtles, how beautiful this beach was, how amazing it all was. And his words to me was, wow, that does sound amazing. I hope I can see it one day. But that day never came. That's why there's a tinge of sadness there. If I have PTSD or a pathological disorder for thinking this way, then let it be. But I don't think anyone can lose someone and just get over it just to go back to normal. The point about death is that it's not normal, no matter how you parse it, it's a curse. And what good is paradise if you cannot sustain the ones that you actually love? When you follow God, sorrow also intensifies the joy because as sad as you are about loss, it also forces you to hold on to something that you cannot lose. Death is a scene that God sets to prepare us for the greater exodus, that Jesus came into the world to provide the way out of sin and death. But the only way we can make it out is because of the one who didn't make it out. God came, became blind to our sins because he left Jesus upon the cross. Faith will give way to sight where we finally get to see the place where there's no more tears, nor mourning. When I saw that turtle, I also imagined the Star of David. 
as a reminder that you will be okay. And I couldn't help but imagine my friend in heaven in glory, all of glory, taking it all in, looking at the scene of a sinless world, thinking, this is amazing. I can't wait till you'll see it someday. I think one day we will. One day we shall. And isn't that what the hope of Advent is bringing to us? Friends, can you join me in a word of prayer?